Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 6, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, big show tonight um, from the Center of Politics from UVA and their crystal ball. Uh, J. Miles Coleman will be our guest. Uh, This will be the second time we've had him on the show talking about just all kinds of things, uh, political mapping and more. I mean, he's written a lot of pieces about states across the country, and so we'll kind of um, tour around America, if you will. Uh, But until then, uh, I guess the center of the American political universe was in Valdosta, Georgia, yesterday evening. Um, Catherine, I hope you're enjoying the last few minutes on your farm before Beto O'Rourke and others take it. (laughs) it was crazy like i only watched a little bit of it but man our president has lost his mind but yes seriously um go ahead yeah no go ahead well i was gonna say uh so he comes down, and I'll set the stage a little better. I just had to go there because the whole thing about the farms, because you see in his Manhattan, Queens, New York mind, everybody in Georgia owns a farm, and you know that's probably not been true in a hundred years in Georgia. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the agricultural population. While uh, bless those people that still do it, that's a fraction of the population these days. And the people who farm probably want it that way. They don't want all the competition. Uh, but seriously, he comes down to campaign for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, and let's just say that was not the lion's share of the focus. Um, Catherine, how effective do you think he was in his task of helping them in their bids for reelection? Very helpful. So he did get – he probably got his base riled up and – but he spent a lot of time, more time talking about how the um, election process was corrupt than he did talking about electing Loeffler and Purdue. Um, and, you know, that's a mixed message. If the system is so corrupt, then why bother voting? And, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, a typical, you know, stream of consciousness rant from our president. And, uh I do not – I mean, I think it just – all it did was rile up the base. I don't think his messaging was effective for those two candidates. Yes. Tim, I don't know if you watched it or you saw reports of it uh, as it was going or later, but how effective do you think he accomplished the core goal for at least the Republicans involved? I tried. I really did. I, 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 I tried to watch it. Uh, uh, and I did make it through some of it and caught the highlights of the rest later. 
Uh, of course, it was all about him, and he didn't really help the Republican candidates uh, at all. He barely got him up on the stage, and it was well into his production, which I think they said was an hour and 40 minutes altogether. Um, and uh, people were hollering, stop the steal, especially at Senator Leffler. She got to speak for every bit of about 38 seconds, and Purdue also said a few words. But it was all about Trump, and we knew it was all going to be about Trump, right? Yes. I mean, I think going in, it's me, 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 myself, and I, and that's what he focuses on. And and maybe 10% of what I read about it was uh, focused on them and the Senate because, of course, it was this – tricky jujitsu of they're the last line of defense if they don't get reelected Kamala Harris is the deciding vote in the US Senate and Donald Trump's still going to be president and if he's still going to be president then Mike Pence is going to be the deciding vote so you can't kind of accept both things at the same time therefore if he still wants to you know fight in this fantasy world of he's going to remain you know president after uh, January 21st, then he can't accept that this race is this critical. And, and I think Loeffler kind of alluded to it in her early remarks, but then that was not received well by the audience that sounds like a core group of these folks are either A, genuinely believe this, or B, and I think this is the case for a lot of them, they act like if they can make it true, then they can steal the race. Because I really do think a lot of these Republicans are saying, oh, Joe Biden really didn't win. They know he won. They just want to create a reality in which they can steal it back, which is very disingenuous on their part. Because I, mean, I just don't see that this many people believe that the North Koreans shipped ballots to the coast of Maine. Um, as someone on Saturday Night Live pointed out, um, it would be – far easier to ship them to the West Coast. So these uh, crazy conspiracy theories don't even make logical sense and with their illogical nature. Um, Catherine, it seems like, and the polls are bearing this out, that Kelly Loeffler is probably five points behind. I mean, that's if you believe polls, but even that crowd, they seem to be more negative about Kelly Loeffler than they are David Perdue. Why do you think... Either he's better received or she's worse received um, than David Perdue. I think that she – well, of course, we have a chronic problem in Georgia of electing women to federal offices, so that's part of it. Um, And also, I think um, she's been – She's a little bit more in the news than Purdue. Purdue's kind of, you know, a quiet, you know, do nothing. Whereas she's, you know, spoken up about something. I mean, not really clearly, but. And also, I think that Warnock is uh, a much more compelling figure in many ways than Ossoff. I think they both are in their own ways, but. Uh, and also, I mean, Warnock has had a lot of ads on TV. I see much more Warnock than I do Ossoff. Now, that could just be me. 
But um, so I think there's just been a lot more discussion and attention around the Loeffler Warnock race than there has been around the Ossoff Purdue. But it, that could just be my perception. I'm not, I, I can't give you any numbers on the number of ads and all that kind of thing, but that's my perception. Yeah, Catherine, I'll say this. If you took the four of them to a swing state mall, like, you know, let's drop them at Town Center, say, or Mall of Georgia, somewhere where you'd have some Republicans, you'd have some Democrats, you'd have left, you'd have right, you'd have, you know, undecided, swing, whatever. I think Raphael Warnock would create more buzz than the other three. And I think you're 100% right. He's got more positive ads. His ads are better. Um, than probably right. anybody in the fields, and she has the most negative. But in that case, they don't – I can't imagine that that Trump crowd cares anything for Raphael Warnock. They probably do believe he's the second coming of Jeremiah Wright. Uh, I mean they believe the hype, if you will. So still in that you know, Democrats are toxic environment, Republicans are the only good, she's less popular than David Perdue. Um, Tim, why do you think that is? Well, let's don't forget, Purdue was elected. She was not. Purdue is more than any man because he's the the Dollar General guy. And she is the multi-zillionaire Atlanta person. Uh, Catherine was right about the gender bias. There's no doubt that happens in statewide races in Georgia. It always has. And uh, another thing that y'all alluded to is uh, the the exact opposite or some form of it is true on the Democratic side where um, it's perceived that she drew the more charismatic, better opponent than Purdue did. Uh, so Purdue can run a different type of campaign than she is running, which is all negative all the time, and uh, Purdue's is, is a little bit more upbeat, uh, some more biographical stuff, that sort of thing. Uh, and another thing, we have to remember that uh, Trump did not want Kelly Leffler to get the Senate seat. He wanted uh, a man that he recognized glowingly uh, yesterday, Doug Collins, to get that seat. So the Trump crowd really probably hasn't ever warmed up to her. Uh, yeah. I could see a split decision in these races on account of all that. And the polls, I mean, once again, we don't exactly know what to make of the polls. They were off in a lot of states. They did a little better in Georgia. But consistently we are seeing that um, the Ossoff-Purdue race is closer than the Warnock-Leffler race, and Ossoff is running behind Warnock or Loeffler's running behind Purdue. I mean, and, and that's kind of the hard dynamic to figure out is how much is it on the Democratic side one candidate's liked better and how much of it on the Republican side is one candidate's liked better. And, and Tim, I think you're right about something. I've been reading uh, – I listened to a book recently, The People Know, uh, by uh, Thomas Frank, and it talks about like the new populism within the Republican Party. And 
Kelly Loeffler is just a bad fit for that. Um, you know, as far as like the every person aura, David Perdue may have the best out of the four, and then um, Raphael Warnock, uh, you know, probably is is second. And you know, for whatever reason, I think a lot of that populism, every person feels there's a racial component that shouldn't be there, but that every person has to be white de facto in that narrative. And I do think there's a little bit of faults in that narrative, but nevertheless, I think that kind of comes through that Kelly Loeffler, Loeffler is just not the every person with her, you know, $10 million jet, the bit, you know, the richest home sale in Atlanta history. Um, husband literally owns the stock exchange. Um, <laughs> no matter how many ball caps she puts on and gingham check shirts she wears, it, it just, that's not her brand, if you will. Um, Catherine, what do you think about Tim's point about the, you know, Purdue being maybe more authentic seeming than her? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he really tries to play that up, too. Um, he, you know, he's out there with his worn out blue jean jacket and, um, you know, dropping his uh, R's and trying to sound like a good old boy when we we know that's probably not all that accurate. And then Kelly Loeffler with her, you know, long blonde hair and very glamorous appeal um, or glamorous appearance, I should say, um, is a is, is a stark contrast to the, you know, good old boy, every man of um, David Perdue. I do think I, I would disagree with you. I understand the racial component of the every man, but I feel like um, Warnock has, Reverend Warnock has done a really good job of trying to, uh, of portraying himself. And I think it's authentic as, you know, a working man uh, from a big family with, you know, strong roots in Georgia and um, uh, an everyman in many ways. Obviously he's, he's, he's leading a very important church and he's not, um, but I do think he's done a really good job of um, showing his authenticity and his commitment to Georgia. Um, but I, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's pro- it's probably a tie between, for me, between Purdue and Warnock as far as their everyman status um, or the, the appearance of their everyman status. And then Ossoff and Leffler are both, you know, I mean, let's be honest, they're elite. Um, that doesn't, necessarily um by definition omit them from being uh a good leader it's just that there is some uh some negative component to that elitism especially um with those trump type voters yeah and and let me clarify i think Raphael warnock has done the most incredible job when something tragic happens, and I think it's happened twice in this campaign. Um, he's been so compassionate. Like just this past weekend, someone on Kelly Leffler's staff tragically passed away in a car accident, a 20-year-old, and he had this incredible quote that you could just tell he was a, he was a a man of faith and, and a minister. And just you know, my condolences go out to your campaign, his family, you know. 
Um, it, it was, and it was seemed so genuine. I, I'm, and when I say that, is I say that out of a you know a, a old school polit- or a political science writing of you know the old books like the politics of whiteness and you know and that negative stuff. And it shouldn't be that way. I'm talking about a, a very negative, old-school, false narrative that shouldn't happen, but still gets framed for some. And that, that's why I'm kind of you know, coming from when I mentioned those folks. Tim, you mentioned Doug Collins, and let, let's kind of get into that. Right at the end of the rally, and if I'm not mistaken, last week I mentioned Doug Collins is a candidate for governor of Georgia um, to primary Brian Kemp. Trump just dropped that. He is so angry at Brian Kemp. He's done multiple um, tweets against him. He spoke out against him at the rally. And then at the end, he said, he mentioned about Doug Collins running and primarying Brian Kemp in 2022. Is this pretty mm-hmm. much kickoff to that gubernatorial campaign? Yeah, and yeah, you, you, you noticed the crowd cheered lustily when he did that as well. Uh, and he, you know, he 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 did that on purpose. He meant to do it. I mean, this guy has been calling the governor a moron and a nut job. This guy called the governor himself yesterday, before he got the bow doctor, and, and you know, asked him to do all this stuff. And he's not happy with Brian Kemp. To him, Brian Kemp, because Brian Kemp won't do what he says is a mortal enemy. Uh, the crowd booed both Kemp and Roethlisberger. Um, and, and that's because, you know, the things that Trump has been saying about him. He said, your governor could stop it very easily if he knew what the hell he was doing. Now, that's what he said in his speech yesterday. When people were hollering, stop the steal, that was his response to him. And uh, yeah, he's 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 just as good as invited uh, Collins to go get him. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see kind of what happens out of that. Now, one thing I think will happen is Kemp will use a lot of what's come out of this to probably tighten voting procedures throughout the state to help whomever the GOP nominee is in 2022. Um, They'll probably cut down on the early voting. They'll cut down on absentee. It'll become like Texas. It'll probably be, you know, um, excuse only or age only absentee voting. And, you know, hopefully we won't have a pandemic, so it'll be a little bit better. But I think a lot of that will take place. Well, let's switch gears here real, real quick and welcome for the second time on to the Kudzu Vine, Miles Coleman. Welcome, Miles. All right. Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. Well, um, Miles, you have written so much. You've been doing so many political maps, and we're going to try to take you across the country and go to different places. Um, But I kind of want to start off with a broad question. Um, You probably, like us, looked at political polls for the last two presidential cycles, and they weren't quite right. Um, And now we're getting ones for this Georgia special election. You'll be getting ones for – uh, Virginia and uh, New Jersey. There'll be other ones that come out. What are we to yeah. make of how to best use political polls moving forward? Yeah, sure. So I think what we have to keep in mind is polls, you know, uh, 
definitely I think there needs to be some kind of reflection and uh, uh, maybe some post-morms after these years. But I think Paul's like, no, 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 we shouldn't expect them to to be exactly perfect. Uh, I was uh, I was talking to one one of my good friends the other day who's a pollster uh, out out of Louisiana. His name is John Cuvion. And what we were finding is, uh, yeah, well, basically a lot of people at the national level, uh, most of the national polls had bought in up something, you know, 51, 43 in the national vote, something like that. Well, what we were finding was, okay, well, if you just look at uh, – we went into 538 state base because they're they do a pretty good job of keeping all of these polls. The polls got Biden's share about right. He was about at 51. Uh, but I think this shows is uh, a lot of this year we heard a lot about the kind of uh, the phenomenon of the shy Trump voter, and I think there may have been something to that. I don't think it was uh, maybe as much as some people. Uh, uh, as much as some people thought, but I think maybe a good rule of thumb um, was a few months ago I was doing a show uh, a show with my boss, Professor Sabato, and he's like, well, guess what? I think when it comes to these polls, you know, it may be good uh, just to if, – if you see a poll that maybe looks too good for Biden – it's not unreasonable to, to maybe give Trump an extra two points out there, so just mentally in your head. So I think uh, what I'm really interested to see with Georgia specifically is when it comes to polls, you know, they, were, they weren't that often Georgia. I mean, most polls showed it uh, Biden-Trump within a point or so, and that's uh, – that's something I noticed too is uh, I don't think that the polls were monolithically off uh, because here in the state of Virginia, Biden carried the state by about 10 points. That's basically exactly what polls pointed to. Uh, so what, I, what, what kind of my, what kind of one of my working theories is that I may need to, it may need to do a bit more research on is I think states where, um, states like Virginia or Minnesota or Colorado, which are these moderately blue states, polls were pretty accurate in these states. And I think what happened there is you have more voters who have higher levels of institutional trust. Uh, whereas I think in some of these redder states or some of these, uh, even some of these more purple states, I think you have a lot of uh, uh, a lot of Trump voters specifically who may be, uh, yeah, I know, who dislike media polling in general. Uh, so they're less likely to answer the phone. So that may be something. Uh, but I think it, um, uh, I think it's, 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 uh, we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on what the polls look like. Uh, but maybe one of the takeaways from this year is, uh, well, perhaps we may have to look more at stuff like voter registration trends uh, or stuff like that that's not, uh, uh, that's not as reliant on polling, maybe. Yes. It, it kinda, I'm glad you kind of got around to the end because when you say sh- shy Trump voters, around where mm-hmm. Tim and I are living, you've got guys with pickup trucks, 
uh, flying these giant, sometimes two Trump flags. Um, mm-hmm. People with, you know, they're putting out the Christmas decoration, Santa check, nativity scene check, Trump flag or signs still up in the yard check. <laughs> they're still wearing uh-huh. the Trump hats, and you're like, really? And shy? Yeah. Come on, these people aren't shy. Yeah. And, and so, but then you got to, I think, what's really going on. Uh, folks that don't trust media, and they're going to say, I'm going to stick it to them because I'm not going to answer their polls. Right. And let's see what they do with that. And, and so and I, I think, think that more of that than the shy. Yeah, yeah, and I do think more than uh, – I think more than the shy Trumpos thing, I think we really – both times we sort of underestimated Trump's ability uh, not to necessarily bring out shy voters, but to, but just just to kind of bring out infrequent voters. Uh, it's funny because I was reading uh, uh, one – one of my favorite books is called The Almanac of American Politics, and they uh, uh, basically that they come out uh, they come out every two years. They talk about 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 the members of Congress at that time, what the political landscape is is kind of like at that time. And I was reading some of the almanacs from the 1980s, and uh, and the conventional wisdom at that time was. Uh, because you think of what the presidential elections were in the, uh, back in the 80s. You had, you know, Republicans like, you know, Ronald Reagan, George H. W. Bush, they won in landslides. The Democrats would do better in off years where, where like, it was lower turnout, 86, 90, uh, uh, 82, 86, 90. And I think we may be because of that. Uh, it really depends, you know. I think that, uh, yeah, it was a high turnout midterm, but compared to but compared to 2020, 2018 was a lower turnout year, and it was better for the for the Democrats. So I think we may be uh, because of Trump's ability to uh, turn out these non-frequent voters, uh, we may be entering an era where. Um, where, where interestingly lower turnout would be better for the Democrats. That's not uh, that's not something I would have told you uh, maybe four or five years ago, uh, because I, I remember in the Obama era, uh, his midterms were really awful, and they would always blame that on low turnout. It would even be uh, um, back of. Um, Back when he was first running for president in 2016, something Bernie Sanders would always say is, okay, well, uh, how do Democrats and progressives win? Well, they win when they get huge voter turnout. And at the time, I agreed with him. I'm like, yeah, but it was – it ended up – it was really Trump. He was the one who brought all of these infrequent voters uh, out of the woodwork, and I think that's – that's something that both parties, to some extent, weren't expecting this time. Yeah, definitely so. Well, let me ask you about one more thing, and that was this yeah. article you wrote about the tipping point state, um, Wisconsin. Yeah. Now, I grew up in a, in a world where Michael Dukakis won Wisconsin, so obviously 2016 was a shock to the system with uh, Donald mm-hmm. Trump defeating Hillary Clinton in the state. And this time it was closer than I thought it would be because, once again, the polls were off. Uh, what is going on with the uh, cheeseheads up there? Yeah, so it's really uh, 
it's really an interesting state. I think think with Wisconsin, uh, other than when Obama was on the ballot back in 08 and 2012, I think Obama, maybe in part because he was one of them, he was a Midwesterner. He, I think, made Wisconsin look a bit bluer than it really is. Uh, because, yeah, it was very close this year. It was very close in 2016, uh, but it was really close in 2004 as well. Uh, so I think what we're seeing is uh, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting state, but in some ways it's following these other national trends. Uh, what we call the wow counties around the Milwaukee area, these are uh, – uh, this is more of the suburban part of the state. Uh, even uh, uh, even when Trump first ran in the 2016 primary, uh, this kind of area, which was historically very Republican, I guess in Georgia, uh, uh, I guess in Georgia the equivalent would be, uh, yeah, it's it's. It's maybe not as red as a Forsyth County, but something like that, a kind of historically Republican county that never uh, reacted well to Trump. And why he won the state in 2016 uh, was he just brought out a lot of voters in the rural area. And uh, I think what happened this year is, uh, interestingly enough, in, in, uh, in Wisconsin, well, 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 uh, just backing up a bit to the national level is one of the things at the Center for Politics we said back in April is we expect uh, we expect this year there's probably going to be uh, a lower third party vote share. Uh, just because if you think at, uh, if you think of some of the people who were running back in 2016, you had people like Gary Johnson. Yeah, not the best known guy, but you know he has a decent profile. Uh, so I think what happened is if you look at places like the Wow counties in suburban Milwaukee, uh, most of the undecided – or uh, most of that third-party vote in and that, that ended up uh, going to Biden. Uh, if you look at a county like Waukesha County, which is kind of the heart of those Wow counties, Trump carried it in 2016, uh, but he carried it something like 60 to 32. So that that it 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 uh it had something like eight percent that went third party. Uh, well, this time Trump got about that same sixty percent share, uh, but instead of thirty two, Biden was up to like third up to like thirty nine. Uh, so I think that uh, when push come when push came to shove after four years of Trump, uh, most of those. Uh, most of those maybe soft Republican suburbanites ended up moving to the Democrat. Uh, but what long-term, what may be problematic for the Democrats in Wisconsin uh, is out in the western part of the, the state. That's kind of the more uh, – that's kind of quintessentially more of the, the purple area of the state. Uh, Trump did decently well there in 2016, uh, and he did even better this time. Uh, I've heard some people say, okay, well, there are uh, – uh, if if you look at, say, uh, one of the Democratic congressmen out there who, who barely hung on was Congressman Ron Kind. He's usually been able to get uh, a lot of crossover vote. I've heard some people say, okay, well, uh, 
There are a lot of small colleges out in Wisconsin. Uh, those are all, you know, online now. So the college turnout was a bit uh, was a bit lower out there. Okay, but still, it's not. Uh, uh, it's this area. Uh, it's this area of the upper Midwest, uh, what some of us political analysts call the dreadless area. Uh, it's uh, yeah, basically out in western Wisconsin. You have a lot of counties uh, that went for Obama twice, uh, but stuck with Trump both times, and it may be problematic for the Democrats long term. Uh, that these uh, that these voters didn't come back. Uh, I wonder how much of that was how much of that was voters who only come out for Trump in presidential elections. Uh, but going forward, that's something I'm very uh, uh, I'm very interested to to see. At the end of uh, at the end of last year, we wrote a piece kind of looking forward, and we called Wisconsin. Uh, we said it was going to be the ground zero of of 2020, and even with all of these changes, with the pandemic, with you know, it's been a crazy type of year that we've had to go through here. Uh, well, guess what? We were exactly right. One year later, it was the most uh, one, still one of the most uh, one of the most really crucial states. Um, so it was. Uh, what was sort of interesting as well uh, is, of course, we talked a lot about the kind of uh, really how Trump won in 2016 was he flipped those three kind of blue wall states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Uh, I think this may go back to, you know, you know what, uh, uh, how, the, the, how the, the polls were off is that, okay, well, if you look at polling, of those three states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, it looked like Wisconsin was going to be Biden's easiest. Uh, he was up by seven, eight points there. Uh, it ended up being, of those three, it was the closest. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's something we're going to have to see go and put the far away. I always think, I always think at least for, for the, the, the near term, it's going to be uh, a very closely contested state, but I'm really interested to see. Uh, okay, those voters in the, the those uh, those voters in those wild counties outside of Milwaukee uh, are they true Democratic voters, or uh, are the Democrats more just ranking those voters? Are they going to vote for Biden in this one election just because they don't like Trump, uh, but then keep voting Republican? Uh, we'll see. Yes, sir. Well, it will be an interesting state to watch. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine, who will pass it to Tim from there. Sure. Thanks for being on with us tonight, Miles. We really appreciate it. Oh, yes. Definitely. I want to ask you about Louisiana. Um, you know, oh, okay. As you posted on your Twitter feed, they finally selected their congressperson. And yes. I uh, I know that um, I have a, a handful of friends who live in New Orleans and Louisiana, and uh, they're really struggling there, especially in New Orleans. Um, a lot of COVID business closures and lack of tourist um, revenue. How are these, how is this new congressperson and the rest of the um, congressional um, caucus from Louisiana, are they going to be able to help 
solve some of these problems? And if they don't, are they going to be, are they going to suffer in 2022 and 2024? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah. It, it, it was, uh, uh, sort of on a personal level. I'm pretty disappointed because every Christmas, uh, I go down to New Orleans, and I'm going to have to stay up here and do the ADA because of the virus. Uh, but it's, it's uh, uh, yeah, I think in terms of, you know, I really, uh, I'm going to maybe start by saying I don't really do policy as much as I follow these horse races. So in terms of what they may do to uh, get funding or whatnot for COVID, uh, I'm really not that sure. I know, you know, no, 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 it helps to, uh, um, honestly, I think in terms of, uh, honestly, I think one of the, maybe one of the biggest losers of this House election, uh, even though he, 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 he was a Republican, uh, was Steve Scalise. Uh, he is the majority whip. Uh, if, if the House elections overall went bad for the Republicans, uh, if they ended it up uh, losing a bit more seats and falling deeper into the minority, uh, I think that would have been a very bad look for Kevin McCarthy, and that may have given Steve Scalise a bit more uh, uh, a bit more justification to, to sort of move up up in Congress. Uh, now it's the opposite. It looks like it looks like Kevin McCarthy looks very good. Uh, I still think it's very uh, it's I, I still think it's very helpful to have someone like Steve Scalise uh, in um, uh, decently high up in Congress. Um, and it looks like uh, it looks like pretty soon uh, we're going to have another new member as well. Uh, because it looks like Congressman Cedric Richmond from the New Orleans area, he's going to be in the Biden administration. Uh, so it's really, uh, for a small state, sometimes I worry that we don't necessarily, uh, you know, have, uh, sometimes I wish we had more clout. Uh, like even though she, uh, even though she lost in 2014, uh, I think uh, I think someone like Mary Landrew was I think she's still in like in her 60s, so she could have at least had maybe two or three more terms in her. Uh, we're a state that's used to being influential in Congress. We would have people like John Groves, Russell Long. Uh, that's not really the case anymore. So that's a challenge for a small state like us. Uh, I know Governor Edwards is. Uh, uh, he's doing some battle with the legislature, with the Republican legislature, uh, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of some of the social distancing measures he wants to put into place. Uh, but I would say, in terms of uh, the electoral backlashes, okay, well, um, we'll see. Uh, I think something we have to keep in mind going forward, at least for the House races, uh, is it's going to be hard. Uh, it's going to be hard to handicap a house for at least for for the next year or so because we have redistricting. Uh, but if you look at Louisiana, it is uh, as much as I like to say it's an interesting state, which it is on a lot of levels. Uh, 
uh, in terms of Congress, we have had this whole decade, we have had, uh, we have six seats in the House. None of them have even been remotely competitive this whole decade. Uh, we'll see, I think, one thing, uh, one thing that Governor Edwards may push for in the district. Uh, and he's, I've heard rumors that he wants to push for, uh, basically, we have uh, other six of our six congressional seats in Louisiana, uh, we we have one seat Congress in Richmond that's black majority. So Edward may push to create another black majority seat. But other than that, I don't see uh, in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of the congressman. It's been a it's 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 uh, if you're a member of Congress from Louisiana, you have a pretty safe job. Whereas, uh, uh, I think that we've seen uh, just just generally speaking with this whole election, by a lot of standards, Trump has not done a great job. I think I'm pretty safe. Uh, I mean, if you just look at the, uh, look at the you can certainly rate, say that here. You know, I can say that. And, I mean, he's still got, what, 70 million votes? So I think I just think we're so polarized as a country. Uh, that we can be dealing some that we can be dealing with uh, uh, um, pretty much with something that's literally as life and death as the pandemic uh, and people and and we're still a very tribal country. Uh, so I think that's uh, uh, that speaks a lot to it right there. Yeah, and I have to agree with you. Uh, Louisiana politics are always interesting. It's always interesting <laughs> to. <laughs> examine them. Um, and on that note, I will pass it to Tim. Thanks so much, Miles. Sure. Oh, sure. Thank you. Well, good evening, Miles. Thank you for being hey. on with us again tonight. Um, you know, Miles, it's very obvious that Joe Biden performed a lot better than down-ballot Democrats did around the country. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah, is is uh I think at some level, if you think at what voters uh, really in the Trump era, the biggest group of voters that's moved to the Democrats are uh, uh, are uh, really these college-educated, wealthy, white type of suburbanites. And I think what the Democrats have to realize is these people aren't straight-ticket Democratic voters yet. Uh, for I, I think for a lot of those, uh, a lot of those voters, they don't want. You know, they've been. Uh, I think you have a lot of your John Kasich type Republicans uh, that voted for Biden, uh, but I think there was a certain attitude where uh, I've. I've uh, Actually, talked to a few Republicans like this in Georgia, in places like Cobb, or uh, places like Cobb, or uh, or like Gwinnett counties. <laughs> that okay? Well, I I feel like there's there's a sense that okay, well, with these voters, okay, well, I don't like Trump, uh, but just give me some Republican I can vote for. Um, and I think you saw that a bit because uh, one of the things I was looking at as I was uh, uh, 
as I was breaking down some of these results in Georgia uh, with Ossoff, uh, of course, he got uh, most of his initial attention uh, when he first ran for that special election in Georgia 6 a few years ago. And he lost it by like four points to handle. Um, if you look at how he did in the 6th district in his race against Purdue, Ossoff would have carried the 6th district by like five points. That's good. Mm. Uh, but if you look at how Biden did there, he carried it by like 10. So even better. So I think you have some of those Republicans there who, uh, who kind of want, they didn't like Trump. They kind of knew Biden was going to win. Uh, but they're like, okay, well, guess what? We don't want to give Biden everything. Uh, so some of them, okay, well, we'll vote for uh, we'll vote for our Republican member of Congress. I think a very good uh, uh, a very good example of that is is uh, well, I think uh, if you if you uh, if you look at the second district of Nebraska, because that's one of those rare states that splits its electoral vote. Uh, that's basically the city of Omaha. Uh, it voted for Biden by six point, uh, but it reelected their Republican member of Congress, Don Bacon, by about the same margin. And I think you saw a bit of that there as well. It's okay, well we don't want we don't want to give the Democrats everything. Yeah, but there definitely was a few uh there was some ticket splitting going going the other way in the Democrats' favor. Uh the other state that splits this electoral votes is Maine. Uh, up in Maine, second congressional district, which is kind of a more, uh, uh, it's a more working class kind of rural part of the, the, the state up north. It voted for Trump by five or six points, voted for uh, in there uh, uh, one of the surprises to us all uh, was that Maine Senate race with Senator Susan Collins. The second district in Maine gave Collins like a 25% margin, uh, but it still reelected their Democratic member of Congress, Jared Golden. And I think Golden fits that area well. And I think that if you look at uh, some, of these, uh, some of these vulnerable Republicans across the country, like uh, Ann Wagner in Missouri, Don Bacon in Nevada as well, because 2018 was such a hard year, uh, they took their races this year very seriously. And I think that helped. And I think the lesson may be for the Democrats is you have to, uh, you have to A, run candidates that fit the area, like Jared Golden in Maine, um, one of the members of Congress who was on the Democrat side, uh, who was standing the alarm all year was Alyssa Slotkin uh, up, in, uh, up in the Lansing area in Michigan. Okay, well, I can tell you Trump is going to bring out these infrequent voters. We have polling that has us up, uh, but I don't, I'm not seeing it. And she was one of those who took her race very seriously, uh, and she ended up winning by about four or five points. Uh, so I think that we... It was unfortunate for the Democrats in that they lost 
really, if you look at that freshman class from 2018, and a lot of those kind of compact at that time that I see, people like Max Rose, Joe Cunningham, Kendrick Warren, uh, I think the biggest reason they lost uh, was just because Trump won their district. That's just hard to overcome. I think uh, as uh, uh, one of the biggest headaches uh, for the uh, for the Democrats in the Senate this year was that race in North Carolina with Cal Cunningham, and of course he got uh, he got into a lot of trouble for his uh, shall we say his texting habits. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's it's. Uh, yeah. He and he ended up losing, uh, but I think his biggest obstacle uh, was just that Biden didn't carry his state. Um, other than um, I just think it shows that there's not. I think there there was maybe more ticket splitting going on uh, in the Republicans' favor than in the Democrats' favor, and I think the only. Uh, I think a very good illustration of that is the only uh, of the uh, of the, the of the, the 34 or the 35 states that had Senate races this year. Uh, the only state that voted differently for president and Senate was Maine. It voted for Biden for past president and Susan Collins for the Senate. Uh, so it's it's. Uh, I don't know if we're going to necessarily see uh, uh, if we're going to necessarily see that type of of, uh, of kind of pro-Republican down ballots split in every election, uh, but it was uh, it was definitely something uh, something that hurt the Democrats in the House this year. I think. Uh, uh, one of my friends put it well in that he said, okay, well, uh, these, uh, these white voters in the suburbs, uh, basically they, they want the illusion of balance. Uh, they're going to vote for Biden, but to feel good, they're going to vote for the Republican member of Congress just to be even, right? Uh, so I mm -hmm. think that's something that hurt the Democrats in a lot of those races. Mm -hmm. you, you had – uh, written an interesting article just now uh, on three of those long-term senators. Uh, I believe it was mm -hmm. McConnell and Durbin and Graham, two, and Graham. two Republicans yes. and, and and one Democrat, and and how well they all fared in the election this year. Do you think that was mainly because of that lack of ticket? splitting you were talking about, or was it something else in particular about those three senators? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, I definitely think in the case of Lindsey Graham right next door in South Carolina, uh, we mm -hmm. never had that race as, you know, you know uh, one of the things we do at the crystal ball is we handicap all of these races. And we, you know, uh, there are some forecasters who have that race as a toss up. Uh, we just never – it's – it's uh, South Carolina is always going to be a hard state for any Democrat. And, you know, we we always had that said as at least leans Republican. And, yeah, I do think in uh, – I do think in the case of South Carolina, it was the lack of ticket splitting. Uh, mm -hmm. How many uh, – how many hundreds of millions did the Democrats raise for Jamie Harrison – and out of 
out of about like I think there are something like uh, something like over 2,000 precincts in the state of South Carolina. He flipped 37 Trump precincts. That's it. It mm. just shows you how you can. We're getting to an age where you just can't pay people enough for advertising enough to get people to split their tickets. Uh, we're such a highly polar, we're such a highly polarized country. Uh, so that was the problem that uh, uh, that was the problem that Jamie Harris had. And I think that um, uh, maybe strategically, it was uh, because of the pandemic. A lot of the Democrats' kind of strategy uh, was more digital technology, uh, and the Republicans—they were the ones knocking door to door. And I think. Definitely Graham beat by expectations in rural South Carolina, and in a lot of those places, you pretty much have to go door to door. I don't think the Harrison people were doing that. Uh, not to uh, uh, not not to not to, to kind of knock them. I think they, uh, uh, in terms of their digital strategy, I thought that was very good. Uh, but to reach those voters, you can't just roll, you can't just roll on. That is my sense. Uh, in the case of Kentucky, yeah, I think it was uh, Mitch McConnell. Just he comes up every six years. The Democrats think they can beat him, but <laughs> Kentucky yeah. is just becoming a red state. Yeah, yeah. At the, uh, I was talking about a few other members of Congress who kind of always. Uh, who like at least took their races very seriously there is uh, I, even though Kentucky is a solid red state uh, um, is a solid red state these days, I think Mitch McConnell falls into that category as well. Even though he has a safe state, he never gets lazy. And one of the things I said in the article uh, is back when Mitch McConnell was first elected in 1984, uh, at the time, other than presidential races, he was the first Republican to win statewide in Kentucky since 1968. So it was a Democratic state. And I think that still factors into his mentality uh, that, okay, he can't let his guard down. And I think that helps him. Uh, yes, overall, uh, overall, McGrath did do a bit better than Biden, I think, instead of uh, – in, Instead of losing the state for like by by uh, by like almost thirty points, you almost lost it by like twenty. You know, a bit better, but you know, it's just such a red state. And I think in the case of Illinois, you have Dick Durbin, who's an interesting case. He's uh, uh, he's one of these rare uh, he's a rare type of Democrat because he's really. Uh, if you think of where uh, most of the Democratic votes are in Illinois, they're in the Chicago area. Well, he's from more downstate. Uh, so I think we saw he's uh, – uh, one of the things I was talking about on Twitter is uh, even though it's Chicago that kind of dominates the state, you have Dick Durbin, who's still a Cardinals fan <laughs> because he grew up in the St. Louis area. Uh, and, you know, even uh, – yeah, he's definitely becoming more um, – um, he's definitely leaning a bit more on the Chicago area for his votes. 
but he does do still a bit better than Joe Biden did, at least downstate. And I think uh, I think with Durbin, yeah, he used to be uh, maybe why he performs a bit worse downstate is uh, when I, I think he was first elected to the House in '82 got to the Senate in 96. When he was in the House, he was more of a true moderate. Now he pretty much votes the Democratic line. And I think someone else who's kind of, uh, someone else who's had that same kind of career track as Kristen Gillibrand as well up in New York, uh, because she's from upstate. She's not from kind of the base part of her state either. When she was in the House, she was a blue dog. Uh, but now she pretty much just votes with Chuck Schumer. And I think it just shows if you're, uh, if you're, someone, like, uh, you're someone like Durbin or Gillibrand, just to kind of move up in the Democratic caucus, I didn't really touch on this in the article, you kind of necessarily have to move a bit more liberal. Uh, so I think that kind of shows up in, 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 the, uh, in the electoral patterns uh, as well, I mean, if you get left at, uh, if you look at the mass that Gillibrand's had over the years, uh, she's kind of like Durbin. She's she's becoming a bit more reliant on the New York area as opposed to upstate. Uh, so that's uh, with with those senators like that who are kind of from the non-base part of their state. Uh, that's always. Uh, uh, that's always an interesting thing to kind of watch. Uh, back in, uh, uh, just because I always have to talk about Louisiana, uh, back a while ago in Louisiana, we used to have Jay Bennett Johnston. And when Johnston was first elected in, uh, in 72, he was very much a conservative Southern type of Democrat. Um, but by the late 80s, uh, he was angling to become majority leader, and he had to take positions that were a bit, you know, a bit more liberal than your average Louisiana voter. And when he was up in 1990, this guy named David Duke was challenging him, and he comes unexpectedly close. Duke wins a majority of the white vote. Uh, and then it was still enough for John Spence to uh, hold on, uh, but I think it just shows how... Uh, just to be able to climb up in leadership, you have to be – your voting record has to become a bit more representative of the national forum. All right. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Well, Miles, we thank you so much for coming on the show tonight with so many you know, great states with information. Um, <laughs> if people have heard you and they want to read you, uh, tell the folks where they can get direct articles, social media, whatever you'd like. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess I'm on. Uh, uh, I'm pretty much always on. On. Uh, my hashtag is uh, at J Miles Coleman, um, and I write for the UVA Center for Politics. So uh, I think the. Uh, uh, I think the. Uh, the address for our site is centerforpolitics.org uh, backslash crystal ball. Uh, basically, Sabato's Crystal Ball is a newsletter. It goes out uh, at least every Thursday. Uh, at least every Thursday. 
sometimes if it's a really busy time, we'll do a few issues a, a week. Uh, something I'm very proud of is this is the first full year I've been with that test out of all. And we've been around since 2002. Uh, we, 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 we have had more issues uh, this year than any year before. And the price is right. It's free. <laughs> so, uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, uh, anyone who's, uh, who would like to see my work, it's all over there. All right. Well, it goes into my email box um, every week, and I enjoy looking at it. There's some things I don't have time to open, but I always open it. I agree the price is right. When I get the bill, I'll know who to call, either you or Kyle, um, about that. But thanks again, Miles, and enjoy your Christmas. Unfortunately, you can't go back home to Louisiana. Yeah, y'all too. Yeah. All right. Well, y'all too. Thanks for having me, and have a good holiday season. You too. Thank, Thank you. You so. too. All right. Yes. Well, that was Miles Coleman. Great to have him on. Oh, we're right at the end of the show, but um, Tim, I think you got to talk about uh, Doug Collins, uh, but we hadn't had any thoughts on Catherine, and that was the last little thought we had. So let's kind of just end with that. Catherine, um, do you think that Donald Trump is setting up Doug Collins for a run and that a successful run against Brian Kemp? I definitely think that the, that the table is set for Doug Collins to run against Brian Kemp. Uh, whether he's successful, I think, uh, may depend on how uh, what we see from uh, Donald Trump going forward. Is this going to be helpful to him, to Collins, or is I think it's all all in the next few months of. Uh, post-presidency Donald Trump. Yes. Well, we'll see, and I'm sure we'll end up discussing that and more and the relationship with uh, Brian Kemp and his future in coming weeks. And next week, we already heard our guests lined up. Uh, Lawton Sack, who's taken over Georgia poll and is a political observer from South Georgia, he'll be on the show next week, and I believe this will be our first Republican guest since the election um, so it'll be interesting to get his take on some things and just kind of what he has planned for Georgia Paul as well. So until then, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, night guys. Everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America.